Well, good morning, church. How's everyone this morning? I, Emma got y'all ready for that one. I could tell that you were ready for the, <clears throat> the welcome there. Um, well, good morning. My name is Trevor Miller, and I am one of the pastors here at Mount Horb. And it's been a hot minute since I've been in this room to be able to share with you uh, this morning. So I'm, I'm really, really excited to be able to be in the traditional space, to be able to preach this morning as we consider, uh, continue our current sermon series called Image Bearers. Has this been a good series for any of y'all enjoyed this? Um, this is such a fundamental piece of what it means to follow Jesus. It's so important for us to revisit this often, and particularly right now, uh, the beginning of this school year, the beginning of kind of things getting back into the swing. What a great series for us to begin with, looking at uh, the image that God has designed within us, created and placed within us, in order for us to join him in his great work within the world. We are image bearers of the divine. We are image bearers of God. So just a little recap to get us on the same page once again. You know, an image bearer is one who closely resembles another in one or more ways. So when you see this particular person, you don't see the other, but they represent the other. They make you think of the other. When I was a kid growing up in a small rural church in Indiana, my dad had actually grown up in the exact same church. And so when I was about five years old, all of the folks in the church, the more seasoned individuals who had been there for a while, when they would see me, they would call me Little Phil. Because Phil Miller, my father, when he was five years old, running around the church doing the same things that I was doing, every time they saw me, they didn't see me, they saw my dad. I was his image in a younger form, and they were so excited to kind of be in and around me because it reminded them of the past. Now, I didn't realize until I got older and had children of my own the kind of pain that my father was going through until I had my second son named Owen Miller. If you know Owen Miller, then you might know exactly what I'm talking about. There are people that ask my wife all the time, what's it like being married to Trevor and at the same time raising Trevor? And we are uh, versions of one another. It's funny when I'm driving in the car sometimes and he's in the back seat behind me and I look in the mirror and I see his face right next to mine. I'm like, wow, he gets it honest. Like he is another image of myself. He is my image bearer. Now, maybe you've met someone before that looks just like you, and, and you're like, oh, that's a doppelganger. You've probably heard this word before, someone who looks like someone else. And maybe it's, it's a nose, or it's a smile, or a laugh, or a sense of humor, or some other kind of various similarity that causes someone to be an image bearer of someone else. When we see that person, it causes us to think about, or remember, or consider the person that they resemble. One of the most fundamental pieces of scripture, one of the most fundamental themes that runs from Genesis to Revelation is this very idea. That when God made creation, when he made human beings, he placed within them his image. In placing his image within them, it's something called the Imago Dei, which means image of God. And we see it first really demonstrated and talked about in Genesis chapter 1. According to the Bible, God created humankind, the Bible says, in his likeness. In his image, which means you, me, we are all image bearers of the divine. And it doesn't really have to do with our physical aspects, our nose, our smile, our personality, or anything like that, because God has no form, no body. Rather, the image that exists within us has more to do with us being willing to live into the design, the order, and the intention that God has had from the world from the very beginning and to join him in his good work within the world. To really understand this particular week of our series, we have to understand God's intended design from the beginning. You see, the story of the Bible actually begins with God creating and placing his image in all that he has made. 
The creative, narr creative narrative, if you've read Genesis chapter 1 before, you know has some kind of cadence to it. There are days that are assigned to each portion of creation. And so on day one, God speaks into being light. And the second day creates sea and sky. Third day creates land, plants, sun, moon, and stars. The next, on the fifth day, fish and birds. The sixth day, then he creates animals. And then the pinnacle of his work, the pinnacle of his creation, he creates human beings. Now, all throughout the creation story, he speaks each piece into being. He commands it to be, and it is. And each time he does so, what's his response when he looks at his creation? He says, it is good. It is good. And then day six, instead of speaking humans into being, the Bible says he takes the very dust of the ground, he forms it with his hands, he breathes life into it, and he looks and steps back from his creation, and he emphatically then says on day six, it is what? Very good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. To really understand this portion of this week of our series, this image bearer series, we have to recognize that the original intention God had for the world, all that he had made, he had made it good, good, very good. And the reason God says this is because it accurately reflected his image that he had placed within it as a part of God's order for the world. One of my good friends here at the church, I won't mention his name because he would hate me if I did, is a tile worker, an excellent tile worker. To be honest with you, he's the best that I know. And he's more than just a craftsman. He's an artist when it comes to working tile, kitchens, bathrooms, whatever else. Multiple times in different ways we have used him to help us uh, over and over again. We recently bought a house and remodeled the entire thing, and one of the biggest parts of our remodel was our kitchen. So the entire thing was ripped and gutted. We went to the two-by-four studs and really all new joists underneath and started from the beginning and built it all the way back up. And part of the big piece that we wanted to do was our floors. And so, of course, we called my friend and said, hey, listen, here's what we want to do. We want to do a brick herringbone floor, which if you know anything about flooring and tile, that is not an easy thing to do. But we trusted his expertise. And so sure enough, he came in, and within the first couple days, we came back to check everything out. And as soon as he walked into the kitchen, we looked down, and we said, this is good, good, very good. We couldn't believe how amazing it looked. He had poured his blood, sweat, and tears, because this individual, my friend, he recognizes that his creation is a reflection of the creator. What he makes and puts his name to, what he stamps, what he works on has something to do and it reflects on himself in a certain kind of way. When people walk into our house now, the first thing they say is they look at our kitchen is like, wow, look at these floors. And we're like, we know. And we point to our friend. He's the one. He's the reason. This creation is a reflection of the creator. This is what takes place at the very beginning of Genesis. Everything that God had made, formed, and fashioned, pointed to himself. He placed his image and reflection within it. And from the very beginning, the goal and the, the point of the entire creation is that God would become famous all across the earth. That when people looked at what had been made and experienced and came in contact with human beings, they would look and say, wow, this is good, good, very good. There must be someone behind this. And through submission and obedience, we joined God in stewarding and fostering all that he had created. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about this creation in proper relationship with the creator. It was known as the Imago Dei, and it held it very well. But if you know the story of the scriptures, you know in Genesis 3, everything changes. 
In Genesis 3, this creation steps out of line, out of order, no longer trusts God. And here's what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree for, that was the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, the one place that God had told them not to go, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it against God's commands. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I would argue some of the saddest words in all of scripture are written in Genesis chapter 3. As God comes walking in the cool of the garden, the response of his image-bearing creation, the ones he had placed his reflection within, is the same response my kids have when something breaks at home. As soon as I come into the room, they hide immediately. They know something's gone wrong. They know something has been broken. And Adam and Eve, they hide from the creator. And I would argue we have been hiding ever since. Knowing and recognizing that something is broken, the good creation rebels against God. Rather than living in line with his design, instead of trusting the creator, they eat this fruit from the one place they were forbidden from. And sin's destructive power is released into the world. The Bible says that it shatters this image. It distorts the reflection the Greek understanding of what happens here would be the word sin. Our understanding of what happens here, we talk about it often, is the fall of mankind. It's sin entering the world. And the Greek understanding is the word amartia. The word for sin literally comes from the archery term, which means to miss the mark. So if an archer had a bow and arrow shooting at a target, if that target uh, was missed and the arrow went off course and landed somewhere far from it, they would call this sin, amartia. And this is the way that they describe what takes place by creation in the very beginning. They miss the mark, the standard that God had placed for them, the kind of order and intention that he had from the beginning. We missed the mark. And rather than stewarding creation, we oppress and take advantage of one another. Rather than living with humility, we become prideful and entitled. Rather than our sexuality being sacred, we, we exploit it. And rather than being generous, we become stingy. Rather than living in obedience to God, we submit ourselves to evil. It's been going on for a very, very long time. It's a missing of the mark of God's original intention. It's not hard to look around at the world we exist within and recognize that something is, is drastically broken. To watch the news for five minutes, to read the newspaper, to look at social media, it's not hard to recognize that something is wrong. Wars, disease, deceit, it's all a part of sin. It's all a part of missing God's design and his intention. And there are places where we see it happen far from us, and there are places where it becomes much closer to home. And the world is in need of the image of God to be restored for God's kingdom to come back and become a reality. The problem is this. This need is beyond our own ability to make right, our own ability to restore. In 1930, there was a church called the Sanctuary of Mercy. 
in Spain. And there was a Spanish painter named Elias. How about that name? That's one of my son's names anyways. Elias Garcia Martinez. And he painted a fresco on the wall depicting Jesus with a crown of thorns. It was known as the Eche Homo, which means behold the man. And so after nearly 100 years, this painting on the wall of this church began to deteriorate. The, the paint was chipping off the wall. The bare wall was being exposed from behind. And so almost 100 years later, in, 20, in, two, in 2012, suddenly and without warning, the painting was restored. There was fresh paint that was put on for the original artist's work. And the only problem was that it was done by an 82-year-old lady named Cecilia Jimenez an untrained amateur artist. And here is the picture that now is in this Spanish church. I'll show you right here. <laughs> so you can see Jesus on the left side, the uh, kind of what was taking place with this art. And then you can see the beautiful restoration on the right side there by Miss Cecilia. Now, there were many people who were obviously very upset that she had taken it upon herself to try to restore this 100-year-old painting. And the problem was she said the priest knew all about it. And he had no problem with her coming to try to restore this. Now, this has been jokingly now called the Eche Mono because it looks more like a monkey than it does Jesus with a crown of thorns. But you can tell it's a, it's a large miss from the original intention of the art, what the artist originally intended for this picture on this wall of this church. Here's what I'm most concerned about when it comes to what's happening within our community, within our culture, with our, within our world. If and only if we are to recognize that there is something broken in our world, many of us, we are just simply trying to restore the image ourselves. As amateur artists trying to put back in place all that's been lost from the fall, from sin, from the brokenness of the world. And the problem is we make great humans, we make terrible gods. This is far beyond our own ability. And this really plays out in two different ways. The first way that I often see it is this. We just simply convince ourselves that we can work a little bit harder be a little bit better, throw some paint on the fresco, shine it right up, that potentially we can overcome the problem, overcome the sin, and make all things right, way out in the very end with good deeds to make sure the bad deeds are outweighed. Now, this sounds like something that we know kind of within the church is not a possibility, but I have conversations like this all the time over lunches, particularly with men from our church. And it goes something like this. We know something's wrong. We know something's broken. We know that we don't love our wives the way we should or our children the way we should or we don't act in the community often the way that we should. And so because of that, we're just going to work a little bit harder. I'm sure if we kind of pull up our bootstraps and we work a little harder, pay a little more focus, then potentially we can do what is right. And here's the problem. We can never overcome sin like that. We can't make it right like that because sin is far too pervasive. It is too corruptive. It is too overwhelming to restore the image simply on our own. And yet we try in all kinds of ways. The second way we try to fix this on our own is just to simply embrace the broken image. We look at the world around us. This is the other extreme of self-restoration. We resign to the fact that this is, this is just how things are. And if we look around and we're honest, our culture is slowly being acclimated to seeing things the way they are, apart from God's intention, as an acceptable way to live. We just put our hands on the hips and we look at the picture and the image and we say, well, it looks good to me. I think it's fine. We call good evil, we call evil good. And this is how far we come. And in doing so, we've allowed the deeply destructive effects of sin to go unchecked. 
And here's what breaks my heart more than anything, that our relationships with one another become deteriorated into politicized conflicts and judgmental arguments. And I'm sick of the inaction that takes place too often with the brokenness in the world so that healing is stifled and wholeness is limited. And we never really see anybody improve beyond what we can do on our own. And these two approaches to the brokenness of the image that is dangerous because it limits the ability to actually experience restoration in and of ourselves. And not just for us, but for those around us. This morning, I believe there's a third option for us. If we look at the world and we recognize that something is broken, there's one more way where we can experience the pieces being put back together. And it's to recognize that we need help outside of ourselves because we can't do it on our own. Here's the question this morning that I really want to look at. Do you, do you recognize or realize that you are in need of a rescue? Like, do you recognize that there is something inside of you, something in the world around us that we can't do on our own, and so because of that, we are in need of rescue? This is why I am convinced that the very core of what it means to follow Jesus, it's about submission. It's about submitting. It's about confession, honest confession and not self-correction. It's a confession that we are infected by something that we can't take care of on our own, and so we are in need of God's help and his healing. And I'm afraid that if we in this room this morning are unwilling to be vulnerable and humble enough to see that we are in need of someone's help outside of ourselves, then we risk never experiencing it at all. We are in need of rescue. You see, the gospel, the thing that we talk about every Sunday, if you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard that word multiple times. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was never meant to affirm you or celebrate you or accept you. The gospel was meant to liberate, transform, and redirect you. That's what we have gotten wrong. The gospel is the way in which we are transformed if we recognize that we're in need of rescue. I have a daughter who's about to be three. Her name is Murray Miller. I have two sons. My daughter came along and she rules all things. If you're a person in the room who has a young daughter, you probably know exactly what this is like. She rules my sons. She rules my wife and I. She rules the roost. And there's a morning kind of routine that she has just developed, and it goes something like this, that if I have not left with the boys to take them to school, when she awakens in the bed upstairs, the first thing that she will do is she will scream out, Dad, help! Now, to be clear, She's not in need of any kind of help. She can easily get out of the bed herself, grab her blanket, her teddy, and her milk cup, and walk downstairs all on her own. But instead, it's much easier for her to simply yell, Dad, help, because she knows what? Dad will come. It doesn't matter what is going on, what I'm supposed to be doing. If my daughter is yelling, Dad, help, I'm on the way. I'm coming to help. And she's learned this. And so really any time that she recognizes that she's in need of some kind of assistance, if her brothers are driving her crazy, it's Dad, help. If she realizes that her pull-up needs a change, it's dad help. And right now, it's only dad, which is super fun. So every time anything needs to be done, she's crying out for help, and she's crying out for dad to come and help. Because she recognizes that when she feels like she's in need of rescue, all she has to do is cry out. That's all she has to do. If you believe this morning that you are in need of some kind of rescue, help outside of yourself. The Bible says the same response. We cry out for help in vulnerability and in honesty. And I believe that our Heavenly Father will come and help us. You see, this is not about trying harder. This is not about just accepting things the way they are, but instead it's recognizing there's something that can be done within us. 
to relieve this sin problem, to help us to live in line with God's order and intention for the world once again, to join him in restoring the rest of all of creation. It is something that is possible for us if we cry out for help and recognize we're in need of rescue. Paul writes about this. Paul writes about this rescue in Colossians chapter one because he's essentially saying the rescue's already come. It's already here. And here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. He says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have what? Redemption for forgiveness of sin. You see, God has already rescued us. He sent the rescuer in the person of Jesus. Paul talks about two kinds of kingdoms. Other places he calls it the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the story plays out all throughout scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and it goes something like this. God's people recognize that they are being oppressed, they are broken, they are lost in sin or because of sin, and so they cry out for help and God comes to rescue them. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of this rescue, the ultimate expression of this restoration. And what Paul says, he uses a very important Greek word by saying this dominion of darkness. It means authority and power. Before Jesus, we are under the authority and the power of evil. It's literally the thing we do because it lives and dwells within us. But God plucked us out and led us to a better kingdom ruled by his son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption. Redemption. Now, this particular word is a fascinating word within the Gospels. When Paul uses this, it's only used six different times within the Gospels. At this point in time, this word apolutrosis literally means redemption, a payment of ransom, or a buying back. So Paul says Jesus is our redemption. Now, he steals this Greek word. Actually, it was a Greek word that was used often within the culture to express what would happen in the Greek slave markets. They would bring individuals back from war and sell them in these markets. If there was a slave, they would be sold in this market. And there was occasionally someone who would come and they would pay the price for this individual. They would bring the individual down, take the shackles off their hands and feet, and they would say to them, you have now been bought back. You are free to go. You've experienced freedom. The Greeks called this redemption. So what Paul does is he grabs this image within the culture and says, you want to know what Jesus has done for you? He's done this. He has bought you back. He has redeemed you. By his broken body and his shed blood, he's paid the penalty. He's paid the debt. The shackles have fallen off and now you are free to go. You're free to live new life. You've been redeemed. A pastor and author and theologian, N.T. Wright, says it this way. He says, redemption is not simply making creation a little bit better, as the optimistic evolutionists would try to suggest, nor is it rescuing spirits and souls from an evil material world, as the Gnostics would want to say. It is the remaking of creation. Having dealt with the evil that is defacing and distorting it, it is accomplished by the same God known now in Jesus Christ through whom it was made in the first place. That's what redemption is. It's not about trying a little bit harder. It's not just accepting things the way they are, but instead through the person who made it to begin with, it is restored and made new. The one behind all things is the one who restores all things. So what does redemption look like? Like in the life of a believer, how do we know when it takes place? 
I would say it this way, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to give in to our selfish desires, but instead we're given freedom to live generous and humble lives. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to give in to sexual desires that outside of God's design, so we can live celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman. It's a focus on Christ. Through the blood of Jesus, no longer about having to control our anger and bitterness, now we recognize we have been forgiven and we can forgive others. Redemption changes our values from earthly ones to kingdom ones. It changes our priorities from earthly ones to kingdom ones. It changes our attitudes from defeat and hopelessness to victory and joy. And Paul says it's all available to us through Jesus, through the redemption of Christ. He speaks even more detail about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 15. He lays it all out for us. He says, but there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness that many, through this other man, Jesus has received. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, but through one man, Jesus, I love the way Paul says it, we receive the wonderful gift of grace. The wonderful gift of grace. Where we don't receive what we deserve, and we receive what we don't deserve. Love and mercy, and a chance at a new start. Dr. Billy Graham once told a story about a time that he was driving through a small southern town. And he was stopped by a policeman. He was charged with speeding, going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And Dr. Graham admitted that he was guilty and that he knew that he was breaking the speeding law. But he was told by the officer that he had to show up in court anyway. So he did. A few days later, Dr. Graham showed up in the courtroom. And the judge asked him, do you plead guilty or not guilty? And Graham said, I plead guilty. The judge replied, well, that'll be $10. It'll be $1 for every mile that you've gone over the speed limit. This was another time, another day, if you haven't really done it. That's not how it goes today. Suddenly, the judge recognized the famous pastor who was in front of him, Dr. Graham. He said, you have violated the law, he said. The fine must be paid, but I'm going to pay it for you. So he took a $10 bill out of his wallet. He attached it to the ticket, and he took Dr. Graham out to buy him a steak dinner. That Dr. Billy Graham said, is how God treats repentant sinners. He says there's many different ways that sin and salvation is talked about. Lots of imagery within the scriptures, but one of them comes from this idea of redemption, that there's a debt that must be paid because of the rebellion against God and his intention for the world. But the good news is this, God knows what must be paid and God pays it on his own by sending Jesus. Jesus, who lives his life in obedience to God, who does everything he's been asked to do, who lives the original intention, the way that Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And then he gives his very life as a sacrificial measure, broken body, shed blood, to pay the debt because he knew we couldn't pay it ourselves. And it's transferred to us. We are now redeemed. We are now forgiven. Paul wraps up Colossians chapter 1 by pointing at Jesus, the one who's rescued us from this dominion of darkness and lifted us into this new kingdom. Here's what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul says, I don't want to leave any kind of questions here. Here's how this redemption takes place. Here's how this salvation is true. He says it's because of Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. Though the image has been marred and stained and broken, when Jesus shows up on the earth, he's the exact representation of who God is. The image is restored. And through his sacrifice, we in turn receive the image once again. And we receive the opportunity to join God in making the world right. Let me be very clear this morning. The church, this church, Every church is not a place for perfect people. It's a place where people who recognize they are broken come to receive this redemption from Jesus. I know my own life. You know your own life. I know there's a work that God is still doing within me, but I also recognize and realize through submission and obedience, I want to live under the rule and reign of God again. I want to have the image of God within my life so that he revealed to the world around me was the intention from the very beginning. Jesus came to restore the broken image. And so this morning, I know that maybe some, even sitting here today, might feel like my life is far too removed from the intention that God has for it. I've messed up way too much. Like there's no redeeming this. There's no restoring this. Maybe you feel like today your life is beyond restoration. And the message today that I want to leave with you you is this. This is a message of hope. Because no matter who you are and where you've come from, it's not your work anyway. It's a submission to the work that Jesus has done. And he has done everything necessary in order for you to be made right with God. It's available to you today. That you might once again bear the image of God in this world. Lastly, long ago, there was a sculptor, and this sculptor had a ruined huge piece of beautiful Carrera marble, and so it was left in the courtyard of a cathedral in Florence, Italy, for almost 100 years. It sat there, and artisans thought that it was beyond repair. There was nothing that could be done with it, but then in 1505, a young sculptor by the name of Michelangelo came along. And he looked at what they called the giant, this huge piece of marble that had been sitting there for so long. And he measured the block and he carefully noted the imperfections that caused the the bungling workmen from years earlier to leave it alone. In his mind, he came up with an image of a young shepherd boy named David. And so he carefully made a sketch of the biblical character the way he envisioned him. And for three years steady, he chiseled skillfully shaping that marble. And finally, when David was revealed, one of his students was allowed to view the towering figure 18 feet high, weighing nine tons. And the student exclaimed, Master, it lacks only one thing, and that is speech. It was so perfectly done. 
It was so well restored from this piece of marble laying in the courtyard for 100 years to this beautiful piece of artwork. The hands of Michelangelo for three years with attention and detail to the beautiful piece that it was. Like Michelangelo this morning, I believe that Jesus is committed to the long and diligent work of remaking you and remaking me. He's willing to put every effort into it because he believes in what he's originally made. He believes in his creation. It's the daily work of submission and receiving grace from God. That like sculpting marble, it's the art of elimination, piece by piece by piece until the beauty of creation is revealed once again. The image of God is revealed to the world around us. So this morning, we'd be remiss if we didn't have the opportunity to respond to the grace, the wondrous grace, as Paul says, of God. So I'd invite you to pray with me if you would. Let's pray together. God, first and foremost, in humility, in vulnerability, with a dependence upon you, I recognize, God, there is nothing that I can do to make myself good enough. There's nothing I can do to restore an image that was once there. And so this morning, God, I, I submit my life once again to you. I ask that you would do the hard work of chiseling and crafting and forming me into the person that you want me to be. Father, I pray for every person here this morning that perhaps has looked at their life and wondered how they ended up where they are. That perhaps has wondered if there's any kind of hope of restoration for them. I pray, God, that you would instill within their hearts a great hope in the person of Jesus. That his broken body, his shed blood has paid the debt for them. That they've been made right with him. So this morning, I just want to pray for any person here this morning that wants to make a decision to receive Jesus for him to do this work. Just with heads bowed, eyes closed, if this morning you want God to do a new work within you, to redeem you, to restore you, would you just put your hand in the air so I can pray for you this morning? Just between you and God, I just want to pray for you. Amen. Just put it in the air so I can pray for you this morning. God, you know our hearts. You've seen the hands raised in the room, a recognition, God, that we're in need of you. It's rescue. We're crying out to you, God, to come and do a work within us. I know this, God, based upon your track record, when we call upon you, you come to help. So, Father, would you meet us here today? Would you begin to restore us? Would you help us to live in obedience to your intention for the world? And may we be a beacon of hope to the world around us. So God, we love you today. We need you today and every day for you to work within us. It's in your name that we pray and everyone together said, amen.